According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, um, to proselytize is to induce someone to convert, to convert to one's faith. Similarly, Oxford Dictionary defines it as to convert or attempt to convert someone from one religion, belief, or opinion to another. And so from that we derive a proselyte is a person who has changed from one opinion, religious belief, or sect to another. He or she then becomes a convert. But for some reason, though, through the years, that word has gained a bad rap. Say the word proselytize, and it produces negative thoughts. For example, Wikipedia says of proselytism, the term is generally understood as pejorative. Negative. Google the word and you will find such articles as, it's time to put a stop to religious proselytizing on campus. Which campus? All campuses. Is there a link between religious proselytizing and hate crimes? There is no right to religious proselytizing in the U.S. military. That's, a, as I understand it, a fairly recent uh, uh, dictate by the Pentagon. And then this last one, Christian, proselyti Christian proselytizing is a form of oppression. But the negative thoughts about proselytizing don't just resonate with unbelievers tired of Christians. A recent Barna survey from February, just a few months ago of this year, revealed some startling results among Christians. When asked, now listen to this question. Is it wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith? The answers varied by age group, but they were startling. Elders, those over the age of 73, 20%, that's one in five, agreed. It's wrong. Boomers, of which I'm a part, 19%. We got it closest to right, just saying. Gen Xers, ages 35, I just put in, you said the years of date and birth, they just put your ages. Ages 35 to 53, 27 or one in four agreed it's wrong. And then incredibly, millennials, ages 20 to 34, this is the part that, that awakened the evangelical world. One in two, 47%, about half, by definition, say proselytizing is wrong. Again, the results of the survey have taken the evangelical world by storm. And while it is easy to jump on those millennials like everybody always likes to do, how can one in five seniors and boomers, one in four Gen Xers, and half of millennials believe in the church, believe that proselytizing, converting people to the Christian faith is wrong? How can they do that? I suppose there are a number of reasons. First, as I've mentioned, the word itself carries negative connotations. And like many other beliefs and practices, the church has been heavily influenced by the culture around us. I say that again. The church has become heavily influenced by the culture around us. Hence my four-week mini-series entitled The Elephant in the Room. There are some things that we need to talk about. They're too big to ignore, or at least we could call it things that are bugging me. <laughs> if we seek to proselytize, we are called bigots, arrogant, judgmental, intolerant, etc. 
I even read some articles that spoke negatively of so-called, ready, American Christian privilege. And no one wants to be defined that way. Barna said in the article about these results, quote, sharing the gospel today is made harder than at any time in recent memory by an overall cultural resistance to conversations that highlight uh, people's differences. Don't miss what he is saying there. By proselytizing, we are admitting that there is a difference in our belief systems. Don't highlight the differences is the cultural cry today. That is arrogant. That is oppressive. Let's focus on what we agree. Uh, By the way, we have allowed the culture around us to define, redefine terms to fit their narrative like proselytize, making them negative, when they are in fact, that word is in fact neutral. Or we have allowed a complete redefinition of terms altogether. Take the words tolerant or intolerant, for example. The word tolerant, this may come as a surprise to some of you, but the word tolerant means to hold an objection against another practice or belief, but to allow others to hold that practice or belief. Today, however, our culture demands that we have no objections, and if we do, if we have an objection, then we are, by definition, their new definition, intolerant. Let me give you an example. If we say that we hold uh, an objection to homosexuality, because the Bible clearly does, then we are labeled today intolerant, racist, bigots, judgmental, homophobic. None of which is necessarily true. But in order to be tolerant by this new definition, I must not only accept other beliefs and practices, I must also affirm them. To be clear, that is not tolerance. That guts the very meaning of the word. But because we hold objections, we are now, by new definition, labeled intolerant. And again, no one wants to be intolerant. Now, that was a bit of an aside, but it fits. You see, no one wants to be called intolerant, and so we have allowed the uh, culture to redefine the term and label us as intolerant, so we're called intolerant. So what do we do now? Well, by proselytizing, we are called arrogant and judgmental. We don't want to be that. So now we actually oppose the practice. It's incredible. We oppose the practice of converting people from other religions to to our own. Even the World Council of Churches, uh, together together with the Catholic Church, issued a statement together, it was about 2010-2011, largely, largely condemning proselytizing. So what is one to do? Do we simply join the mainstream of culture and think it wrong? Many apparently have. And so it's made me wonder, for example, I suppose proselytizing is okay if it seeks to convert or convince someone of your beliefs if he or she has no belief system. Follow what I'm saying. It's okay to proselytize if the person has no religion. But if they are Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or even in another form of Christianity, they are now off limits. And so, for example, as we've been talking about this morning, all missionaries are wrong. We should bring them home. All those reformers of the 16th century, by the way, were wrong. 
So the first reason proselytizing is wrong, culturally speaking, is because it demonstrates arrogance and intolerance. We need not to not only accept other beliefs but affirm them, which leads to a second reason there may be a growing number even among professing Christians who oppose the practice of this proselytization or proselytizing. You see, there are three positions that you can take on the Christian faith as compared to other religions as it relates to their ability to save you, to get you into heaven, if you will. Every religion has its own brand of how to please God and to attain the afterlife. And so within Christianity, as it relates to this ability to save, you can hold one of three positions. The first is called pluralism. Pluralism very simply teaches that all religions contain truth, no matter how seemingly contradictory, and therefore all religions lead to heaven. So it does not actually matter whether you are Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, or whatever. Believe something sincerely and practice it and you will make it. The idea is that we all worship God He or she just goes by a different name in other religions. I shared with you uh, a little uh, while ago that I was in a recent uh, gathering of of interfaith people, not interdenominational, interfaith people, and the one leading the meeting um, prayed, I'm not sure to whom, because at the end, the one praying said, we pray in the name of the one who goes by many names. You see, if you hold this idea of pluralism, that everybody's going to make it, then proselytizing is not only offensive, it's actually unnecessary. Everyone's going to make it. And further, you understand pluralism is only one step away from what is called universalism. That is, because God is love, everyone eventually is going to make it to heaven. And by the way, there are a growing number of professing Christians within the church, the church, who hold this position. Everyone will make it, love will win. I'm going to take the time to refute this particular idea, but to be clear, it is clearly against the teaching of the Bible and the historic Christian faith. The second position is called inclusivism, which is kind of interesting. One step removed from pluralism, it goes like this. Believe something, whatever it is you want to believe. Believe a world religion. Take your pick. Practice your religion. Now listen, and inasmuch as you practice those ethics similar to the Christian faith, you will get to heaven by the Christian faith. You say, how? Follow. Jesus died for your sins, and you'll make it to heaven because he did, even if you don't now know it. Because some of your practices were in line with Christianity. You'll get there. And Jesus himself will meet you and say, you are included because you practiced ignorantly the tenets of the Christian faith. You were generous. You were kind. You took care of the poor and needy. Many religions do that. So he will say, welcome. In other words, Jesus' work on the cross saves people even if those people don't know the gospel and don't confess him as Lord. C.S. Lewis held this position. You should know this. I I, I love C.S. Lewis. I've read most of his works. Um, But to be clear, he was a professor of Renaissance literature. He was not a theologian. In his famous book, Mere Christianity, page 178, if you want to know, 
He wrote, There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him, even if they don't know him, attracted by him, that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. There are people in other religions, in other religions, who are being led by God's secret influence, whatever that is, to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. For example, he says, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on the Buddhist teaching about mercy and to leave in the background, though he might uh, still say he believed, the Buddhist teaching on certain other points. The point being, this Buddhist will make it because he observed some tenets that were similar to Christianity, even though he didn't know it, even though he did not hold to true Christian doctrine. Is this true? Is it true that while not accepting the Christian doctrine about Jesus, that they can still belong to Christ without knowing it? Inclusivism says yes. But again, is that true? Is this the teaching of Scripture? If it is, it is no wonder more and more are rejecting proselytizing. If it is, according to this position, evangelism is unnecessary. Which leads to the third position, one which I strongly hold, and I believe the Bible strongly teaches, and it is called exclusivism. And right away, the very name makes it sound arrogant, entitled, intolerant, and privileged. Perhaps we should come up with another name, or perhaps we should just accept what the Bible says. Exclusivism teaches that, listen, that explicit faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of humanity through His work on the cross is absolutely and indispensably necessary for salvation, hence missions. In other words, the only way to forgiveness, reconciliation to God and heaven is through repentance of sin and confession of Jesus and His work. The exclusive The exclusive way to God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, if that is true, and again, I strongly believe that it is, then proselytizing, listen, is necessary. It's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. Do not allow culture to redefine the term. Typically, we call it evangelism, and it is the responsibility, as Pastor Doug said, of every Christian. It's why, as two different people standing up here uh, have already noted, it's why we send missionaries around the world to share the gospel and plant churches of Jesus Christ. It's why we are part of the CMA, because they have almost 700 missionaries in over 60 countries of the world, and their focus is the gospel of Jesus Christ and planting churches which is why we observe this Great Commission month. They go, the CMA, I just throw this in, they like to go to unreached people groups because proselytizing, converting from other religions, whatever that religion is, is absolutely and indispensably necessary. 
Because other religions, despite what a growing number of even professing Christian believers hold, will not work. Perhaps a better word, because proselytizing is so offensive, is again evangelism. It is sharing the good news of Jesus with people, regardless of who they are or what they currently believe, because, listen, because we love them, not because we're arrogant. But because we love them and we want them to know what we know, the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God in a future home in heaven at the coming of Christ is, is our only exclusive, blessed, biblical, and sure hope. Consider what comedian and magician Penn Gillette, um, a well-known, by the way, non-believer, and this has been quoted other times. I've never quoted it, so whatever. Perhaps you've heard it. Listen to how he explained or responded to someone sharing um, the Bible um, with him. He actually said, I do not respect people who don't proselytize. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell, and he doesn't, by the way, but if you believe there is a heaven and hell, and you think, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward... How much do you have to hate somebody not, not to proselytize? How much if what we believe is true, but because we don't want to create some kind of tension, we don't want to be labeled as arrogant or Christian privilege, whatever that is, how much do we have to hate somebody to keep our mouths shut? With all that as an introduction to my sermon, <laughs> by the way, entitled Evangelism Includes Proselytism. Um, by the way, next week, um, I, I, I told you the third week was going to be the inevitable end of the sexual revolution, and some people have asked me, um, is, will this be suitable to bring my children to? I promise that it will be rated PG. It won't be, it won't be G. It will be rated PG, all right? I am going to talk about some things like homosexuality and the transgender movement and all of that. And if you're not prepared to have that kind of conversation with your six-year-old, it's probably best that they, please come. <laughs> but maybe put them in children's ministry. So here's the question, why then do we evangelize? Let me give you the following three reasons, which by the way, this part is shorter than my introduction. First, because we are commanded to do so. I know that we understand that. But did you know in another survey, another recent survey, Barna survey among professing Christians, only one in three could identify the Great Commission, 37%. Most of us know the Great Commission is found in Matthew chapter 28. There is there in, in, in some of his last words before returning to heaven, the last words of Matthew's gospel, Jesus said to his followers, which includes us, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and then Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Every church has, has the Great Commission I should say most churches have the Great Commission summarized in their own words 
with their mission statement. Ours goes like this. We are called by the grace of God for the glory of God to become and multiply fully devoted followers uh, of, of Jesus Christ. Again, I know that we know this, that Jesus commanded us to make disciples, to make other followers of Jesus. It's not called the great suggestion. It's called the great commission. Go make disciples. And, and in our going, that is wherever we go, we're sharing Christ, whether it's in our, at our homes or in our workplaces or in our neighborhoods, in your going, wherever it is you go, you take Jesus with you, baptizing, that is encouraging a public confession of repentance of sin and faith in Jesus, and then teaching, that is discipling them to observe all that Jesus commanded. That's what Christ followers just naturally do. It's who we are. But I want to draw your attention. I know you know the Great Commission. Now I want to draw your attention to verse 19. Go and make disciples of whom? Of all the nations, regardless of race, creed, religion, gender, color, age, etc. It could be translated go to all people groups, all ethnicities. None are exempt. It does not matter what they currently believe. Listen, they all need the gospel. Jesus said it this way in Luke's writings. Luke wrote two books in the New Testament, Luke and Acts. In, in Luke 24, we read, then he opened their, Jesus opened their minds, the two on the road to Emmaus, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, this, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. That's the gospel. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name. Where? To all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. He said in Acts chapter 1, but you will receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you shall be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends, the remotest part of the earth. We are to spread the gospel to all, inviting all to believe with us. You see, proselytizing is not a bad word. It's not only not a bad word, it's a good word, and it's also commanded. Because we understand a, a truth clearly proclaimed in Scripture, there is no other way to God. There's no other way to find forgiveness in eternal life. Do you remember when Peter preached the first message of the Christian church? It was during Pentecost when observant Jews, followers of Judaism, of the true and the living God had come to Jerusalem. You would think if anybody did not need to be proselytized, that is converted from one faith to another, it would be them, right? But we read, he preached and 3,000 were saved that day. Even Jews need Jesus. Remember Jesus said to Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews, the teacher of the Jews, Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Further, we know that Paul said in Romans chapter 9, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I, wish, I, I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Who is that? Israelites. They need Jesus. He said in chapter 10, brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Israelites is their salvation. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. They have a zeal for the true and the living God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Because they don't know Jesus. For not knowing about God's righteousness, which he talked about in Romans chapter 3, seeking to establish their own, 
by the works of the law, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God through Christ. In the context of the book, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. My point is even followers of, of God need Jesus. Further, we know these verses, John 14, you know these. I am, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the only way, he said. And John, later the same night, and this is the Thursday night before he dies, he said in his prayer to the Father in John 17, this is eternal life, this is it, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son will not see life. They're not okay, whoever they are. The early disciples understood this. They went everywhere preaching the gospel in Acts 4. Peter said, there is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given to men given among men by which we must be saved. Do you understand the Scripture clearly declares that Jesus was the Son of God sent by the Father to die as the atonement for sinners. And those exclusively, not meant to be an arrogant term, those exclusively who believe in Him have eternal life. Paul would later write in Romans chapter 10, whoever will call on the name of the Lord, this is good news for you today, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? If we just leave them to believe whatever it is that they want to believe. How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So proselytize or evangelize we must because there is no other way. You see, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you believe that he was the son of God and that he came to die for your sin. And if you have accepted him and trusted him and believed on him, he has given you new life and you... And you cannot believe that another way will work or you don't understand the gospel. It's contrary to Scripture. So if it is true that Jesus is the only way, proclaim the good news, we must. And let the chips fall where they may. Which leads to the second thing I want to say. I just said it. The gospel is good news. That is what the word gospel means, good news. Do you understand? I know people don't necessarily want to hear it. I know they're tired of us, and they think that we are proselytizing them, negative term. They think that we are oppressing them. We have good news. Of course, it includes bad news first. You've heard me say that over and over. The people are sinners in rebellion against God. But good news, God did something about your sin. He loved you. We have good news to proclaim. Do not let the culture and the world tell you that proclaiming good news is a negative thing, that proselytizing is a bad thing. It is not true. Stop listening to the culture. It is good news that we cannot, we must not keep to ourselves. God loves the world so much he sent his own son to die for the sins of people. And we have the privilege and joy of telling them. Last night in my home, we had dinner 
together with people from at least three different countries. It felt a little like heaven. We want to tell people so that Revelation 5 will come to pass. They sing a new song saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the book and to break its seal, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, regardless of what they believe now. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Don't you want to sing that with people from around the globe? every created thing which is in heaven on the earth and on the earth and on the sea. Do you see how all-inclusive this is? All things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Four living creatures kept saying amen. Do you see, God has people from every nation under heaven on the earth and we must share the gospel with them. Third and finally, by as we close, we must proselytize, we must evangelize because listen, the implications for those who do not receive Christ are eternal. Again, more and more, even professing believers in the church are denying the consequences for not embracing the gospel. They are adopting pluralism or inclusivism. They are accepting universalism, that in the end, love wins and everyone makes it. And further, more and more are denying, listen, the eternal reality of hell. Be interesting to take a survey. Oh, they've already been taken. And the number is increasing for those who deny the reality of hell. We've all heard that Jesus talked more about hell than heaven. The Scripture clearly teaches hell is for those who do not believe the gospel. It is real and it's, it is eternal, conscious torment forever. And so, I would quote Gillette again, if that is true and you believe that, and I know most of you don't, I mean most of you do, I mean, if you don't then I need to find a new job. If most of you do believe this to be true, to quote Gillette again, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize, to not share the gospel? And I will quote Paul again, how can they believe if they do not hear? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Final words, so bring it. There are people in your circles who need to hear. So I'm challenging us to share the gospel. Let us together fulfill the Great Commission in our circles of influence and make disciples. Let's stand for prayer. Father, the gospel is good news.
we believed it when someone shared it with us. <laughs> this was your plan. This, is, this, is, this was your plan about how the gospel would be made known to the ends of the earth. You gave your disciples, that's us, the responsibility of sharing good news. And even though our culture does not always want to hear it, the good news is you draw people to yourself. You convert dead, unbelieving hearts. You breathe in new life. And so you've given us, as Doug reminded us, the ministry of reconciliation. May we embrace it. Even if people get maybe upset, maybe if they ridicule us for believing this fairy tale, we know it to be true. We know what Christ has done in our lives and in our hearts. We know the way he has changed us. So may we go from here with renewed vigor, renewed commitment, renewed energy to share the good news of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.